Yes, yeah, so I've been given the quite kind of broad title of um, kind of sexuality, gender, that kind of stuff. Um, I guess it goes without... Oh, I need to tell you who I am first, don't I? Um, so I work for a charity called Friends International, which I'm sure that hopefully you, um, you know what that is. Um, so I work down in Bournemouth welcoming international students uh, to Bournemouth. I've been doing that for just over a year. Um, I've had various other roles, mainly in, in student work. Um, I worked for UCCF for a few years. I worked with a guy called Michael Otts, who's a, a university evangelist that some of you might have come across. Um, and it, it seems like quite a random sort of trajectory if you kind of put it all down on paper. But I, I like to think that the thing that kind of ties it all together is that um, I really believe, as I'm sure that you all do too, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is good news for everyone. Whatever country they're from, uh, whether they're students or not students, uh, whatever their sexual orientation, whatever they say about their gender, and we'll come on to that more later. Um, so it's great to be here this evening talking about such a um, key, crucial issue, an issue which is kind of really live at the moment in, in the media and in our, our culture in society. Um, as you probably are aware, um, this is a huge subject, and so all we can really do this evening is kind of scratch the surface, all I can do is um, begin to maybe get a conversation going. Um, so that's my, my plan for this evening, is to, for kind of half the time we've got together, um, I'll do some talking and I'll say some things, uh, and then for the second half, um, I'll throw it open to, to Q&A, so that you can kind of decide where you want it to go, the kind of things that you want to talk about and, um, and get me to talk about. So um, do be thinking as I'm talking about what you might want to ask. We'll take a little break in the middle so you can write questions down if you prefer to do that rather than um, asking them out loud. Uh, but hopefully you can, we can at least then sort of take this in a direction that will be the most helpful to you. Um, I guess it's also important to say at the beginning that all of us will come to this from slightly different um, places and maybe from slightly different angles. For some of us, this will be a really personal issue, maybe because it's something that we're dealing with ourselves, maybe because um, family or friends are, are dealing with it. Um, for some of us, it will be something that we're dealing with all the time, maybe at, at work or, uh, or whatever. So we'll all have these different um, directions, I guess, that we come to it from. And I guess also, I don't want to assume that we all think exactly the same thing on this. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't want to take that for granted. Um, so, again, the Q&A hopefully will be a chance to, uh, for us to kind of explore some of those things. Um, but I want to try and be sensitive. If I, I'll do my best, <laughs> but if I don't manage that, then hopefully you can uh, forgive me. Um, yeah, I thought it would be helpful, um, before I kind of get into sort of what the Bible says about this stuff, um, to tell you a little bit of my story. And I guess that will probably help to explain why, randomly, um, I've been invited to come and, uh, come and do this. Um, but I thought I'd start by talking about an episode of EastEnders. Um, I promise it's, um, it's connected. Um, in 1996, there was an episode of EastEnders. They have these EastEnders specials every now and again. Um, and there was one in 1996 where um, quite a few of the cast went to Blackpool for the weekend. Um, I don't know if anyone kind of saw it and remembers it. Um, but they all went off to Blackpool, and as you can imagine, it was a very sort of drama-filled weekend, and nothing went smoothly, and there was lots of falling out. Uh, but some of the people who went, there was Bianca and Tiffany, who I'm sure fans will remember. Uh, there was also Tiffany's boyfriend, Tony, um, and her gay brother, Simon. And, like I say, as you can imagine, all sorts of drama. But there was a moment in that 
in, in one of those kind of episodes of this EastEnders special, um, where um, Simon, uh, Tiffany's gay brother, finds Tony um, being chatted up by some men, um, and they sort of have this bit of an argument about Tony kind of leading them on. And there was this sentence where Tony said, you don't get it, I'm like you, I'm gay, he said to, to this guy Simon. And as I was watching that as a, what would I have been, about 13, as a 13-year-old, it was that moment where the penny dropped, and I thought, yeah, me too. Um, it was that moment where I realised that was how I would describe myself. Um, I'd known for quite a long time that, um, that there was something different about me, that I thought about uh, guys differently than I was supposed to, I guess. Um, I kept it a secret. Um, but it was at that moment, randomly, in an episode of EastEnders, that it kind of hit home and the, the penny dropped. And I think it was because I didn't really have a framework to, to think about this kind of thing um, until it was provided by um, B- the BBC. Um, because this was, this was the 90s and the world was, uh, was a lot different than it is, um, than it is now. In 1988, um, I guess lots of you will know, Margaret Thatcher brought in uh, the Local Government Act, which included a, a, a part called Section 28, which basically said that um, local authorities weren't allowed to promote, as they called it, um, homosexuality or kind of homosexual lifestyles. What it kind of meant was that everyone was just really scared to talk about it in case they accidentally promoted it. And so in, in all the kind of school you know, kind of um, sex education, relationships, le- lessons, all of that. Nobody really um, talked about it. My family didn't talk about it. It was not the kind of thing that you talked about. Um, and whenever anyone did talk about homosexuality or about gay people, um, it, was, it was either kind of in, in sort of hushed tones or it was um, as a, like a, a really bad, awful thing. Of course, there was also the, the kind of AIDS um, epidemic going on as well. So there was a, quite a note of fear as well. So it was only really through the TV that I began to, to ask questions about this kind of thing and began to, to find out about it. Uh, but there were very few gay characters on TV. There was a big scandal because um, on a TV show called Biker Grove, which some of you might remember, um, there was a, um, a boy kissing another boy and there was a big scandal. Um, but there wasn't a lot of kind of talking about it. So it was this episode of EastEnders where it all kind of finally uh, came together. I think one huge difference that, that there is now that between, between kind of life for young people growing up and thinking about this stuff now than there was then was there wasn't really a lot of pressure. Um, now, as soon as um, kind of young people get anywhere near their teens, there's this intense pressure for them to label themselves. If you go on YouTube and you search for uh, coming out stories, you get kids as young as sort of um, 13 making these YouTube videos about coming out and about realising that they're gay. But that kind of thing, I mean, YouTube didn't exist, obviously, but um, that kind of pressure didn't really exist. Whereas now, you're free to choose to be whoever you want, but you have to decide. You have to figure out who you are. And so I guess that was one of the blessings, really, um, of when I was growing up and thinking through these things, um, was that there wasn't that kind of intense pressure to, um, to figure it out quite so quickly. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of age 13. So for the next few years, I kept it a secret. Um, 
wasn't quite sure what was going to happen, what life was going to look like. Then I got to university, and at the end of my first week of university, um, I became a Christian. I met some Christians at uni, um, realised that they talked about Jesus as though he's a real person and has real things to say about life. Um, And over the course of basically a week, um, I realised that I wanted what they had. I wanted to follow Jesus like, like they followed Jesus. I don't actually remember questions about sort of sexuality and what implica- the implications would be. I don't remember those questions being a big deal as I thought about becoming a Christian. I think I just realised, okay, this stuff that they're saying is true, therefore I need to act on it. And then I had to kind of work out the implications later. But as someone who I, I came to believe that the Bible is true, that it's God's word, that he, he speaks to us and he tells us how we should live, um, as someone who believes that the Bible is true and that God has spoken pretty clearly about his intentions for human beings in, in the area of, of, kind of sex and marriage, that obviously had implications and we'll talk about what those implications were. Um, so I guess that's... <laughs> That's why I'm, I'm standing here and why I talk to various groups of people about this. Um, I guess I start with my story, not because I want this to be all about me and, and for me to just kind of... It is sounding a bit like this is your life, isn't it? Um, that's not the reason for doing that. I think I start with my story for a couple of reasons. And the first one is that it's very easy for us to think that questions of, of sexuality, sexual orientation and gender and all sorts of connected questions are issues for for the world out there, for for the rest of the world to to think about. They're wrestling with it, but it doesn't really go on in here. Uh, But that's not true. It's an issue for real people. Maybe it's an issue for real people um, in the room tonight. And even if it isn't, then for friends and for family and for colleagues, people that you know who who have these struggles going on in their lives. Um, So that's one reason for sharing my story. I guess the other is to say again that with all of that, I believe that the gospel is good news. Whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your sexuality or your sexual orientation, um, and I've found it to be good news, even though there are big implications for for my life, for family and all kinds of things. Um, And actually I'm really keen that other LGBT people, other gay people, people with all these different kinds of struggles, that they, that they know that too. So it's great to be able to begin to talk about this stuff with you this evening, and maybe together we can kind of think about what that might look like. Um, what I want to try and do is, is give you just a, a, I guess it can only really be brief, but at the beginnings of a framework for how to think and talk biblically about, particularly about sexuality, the the gender question is, is another kind of huge side of things, but maybe we can get into that on the Q&A later. Um, so I, I want to start by giving you a bit of a framework, and then I'll mention a couple of kind of ways that I think Christians, the church, your church, should respond. And then, as I say, lots of chance to, to ask more about some of these things. As we begin to, to think about this stuff, and as we begin to talk about it, I think there's one thing that we need to keep absolutely at the front of our minds. There's one thing we need to remember, and that is the Bible is 100% clear about how God feels about gay people, about LGBT people. And that is that he loves them, isn't it? 
That has to be our starting point. Because God loves sinful human beings, whatever their sin, whatever it is that, whatever ways they find to not live the way that God wants them to live. That includes gay people, but it's not just limited to gay people. Um, God loves sinful human beings enough to give up his son to save them and to welcome them into his family. I think we need to start with that, don't we? Whatever else we have to say, because I think if you don't get that right at the beginning, then you probably shouldn't actually say anything else about this issue to people, because you're going to get it hopelessly wrong. But then, when I'm, when I'm talking to someone about this kind of thing, I, I quite often end up involved in university mission weeks, which is where I guess I do lots of my talking about this, sometimes from the front like this, but often it's, it's kind of in conversation. But when I talk to people who, particularly people who aren't Christians, about sexuality and what the Bible has to say, my main aim is basically to present a coherent picture, a biblical picture of sex and relationships, so that Christian sexual ethics make sense. I might not be able to convince people that they're 100% brilliant um, at that stage. My aim is basically to help them to see that it makes sense at the very least, and then to introduce them to Jesus. That's, that's the kind of outline that I tend to go for. Um, I want people to see that actually the things that we say about relationships, the things that we say about sex and marriage, they follow on from what we believe about human beings and about God and what it means to live in God's world. It's not just because we find the idea of two men or two women disgusting, but actually that it, it flows out of our understandings of God and of ourselves and of the world. And I think you have to start with a pretty basic question, because... Actually, it comes down to the question, is there a God, doesn't it? If you, particularly if you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, is there a God? Because if there's no God, then actually we, we're free to do whatever we want, aren't we? Why should there be any restrictions on what we do? In the late 90s, all of my cultural references seem to come from the late 90s this evening, but in the late, in the late 90s there was a band called the Bloodhound Gang. Don't, don't Google them, but... <laughs> They had a song which went, uh, you and me baby ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> now I doubt that any of you got that in your Valentine's cards this year, but, um, but if, we're just, if we're just a collection of chemicals, if we're just biological machines designed to pass on our DNA, then sex is just another chemical reaction, it's just another biological function, isn't it? So why not have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want? however much you want, whatever. Why should there be any restrictions? But if there is a God, if there's a God, as we obviously believe there is, if there is a God who created the universe and who created us with meaning and with significance and on purpose, then it stands to reason that sex should have some kind of meaning and significance too, doesn't it? So it really does start with whether you believe there's a God or not as to how you answer these questions. And then once you've, once you've kind of made the assumption that there is a God, then we want to know what he has to say. So turn to Genesis 1 if you've brought a Bible. These things always start in Genesis 1, don't they? So, there we go. And um, just have a look down at Genesis 1, um, verse 27 and 28. 
So uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1 verses 27 and 28 say this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God creates human beings. He creates them male and female in his image. And he gives the first humans these various commands, doesn't he? These things that he wants them to do. So God makes human beings a bit like him in his image. And then he delegates some of his responsibilities for the world that he's created. And he actually delegates some of his authority as well, doesn't he? Um, he's done kind of all the creating so far and he delegates this kind of ongoing work of creation to these human beings. He delegates some of his authority in that he tells them to rule over the world that he's made. He kind of sets them up as um, managers of the world that he's made. And an integral part of the commands that God gives to those first humans is sex, isn't it? He tells them to go and be fruitful, to increase in number, to multiply. Basically, he wants them to go and have sex and have babies, doesn't he? So one thing we can immediately say about sex and sexuality is that it's an important integral part of what it means for us to be human and what it means for us to um, fulfil these commands that God's given to us. Now, for some people, even that message, that sex is a good thing created by God, that it's part of the world that God intended, that message can, would come as a bit of a surprise, that Christians believe that. We've said some pretty weird and wonderful things about sex and had some pretty weird attitudes to it over, over the centuries, haven't we? Um, but we can start by saying that sex was created by God as part of his design for human beings, that it's a good thing. Um, and of course, we could kind of follow on from that and say, sex is enjoyable, that's why people do it, isn't it? But there's kind of more than that, so flick on to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So you could see, you could see sex as a biological mechanism for procreation, for creating children. And it, it is that, isn't it? But from what we read there, it, it's more than that, isn't it? Because there's, there's a unity that sex brings in a relationship. Um, as two people become physically vulnerable and, and connected, they also become kind of emotionally and spiritually vulnerable and connected as well. And in fact, they become so closely connected that Genesis 2.24 describes them as becoming one flesh. So when the Spice Girls sang Two Become One, they were more, they were more right than they realised, weren't they? It, that is basically a paraphrase of Genesis 2. And that, I think that's the last late 90s um, reference I've got. Um, but that intimacy and connection, which is made into a, a lifelong covenant in marriage, that then is the perfect relationship where children are to be 
um, nurtured and brought into the world and to kind of carry on this pattern of a man leaving his father and mother and being united to a wife. Um, So sex is a good thing. Sex is a, a good gift from God. It has this power to unite people, to create these family units where then children can be produced. But then, there's something even more um, significant. So, just flick on a few chapters to Ephesians 5. I've missed out a bit in between, obviously, um, for brevity's sake. So, Ephesians 5. Um, in all of the stuff that you see in Genesis, um, sex enjoyed in marriage, um, or you could say, I guess, marriage where sexual intimacy is enjoyed, All of that points us to a bigger reality which uh, Paul outlines for us in Ephesians 5. I'll read you a bit of it when I've just found it. Here we go. So Ephesians 5, uh, 21. So these are familiar words, I guess, particularly if you've been to a sort of evangelical Christian wedding. Um, But um, So Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ... Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Now this, is, this next bit will be familiar, given what we've just looked at. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So do you see what Paul is doing there? He's taking everything about the the marriage relationship, the, the marriage where sexual intimacy is enjoyed, and he says that all of that ultimately points us to the relationship that God wants with humanity the relationship he wants um, with human beings in Christ, between Christ and the church. And what you find is that different aspects of biblical marriage, they point us to different aspects of God's relationship with us, don't they? A marriage is intended to be faithful and committed, and um, throughout Scripture that's used as a picture of human beings relating to God. God. God is faithful and committed to us, and he expects the same in return. Marriage is intended to be lifelong. God's relationship with us lasts for eternity. And as you see here, um, kind of outlined in Ephesians 5, a marriage is a union of difference, isn't it? As a man and a woman become one flesh. So he, he outlines their different responsibilities for men and women and different responsibilities for kind of Christ and his church. Men and women, they're the same but different. And as um, God relates to us in the person of Christ, we have the same kind of thing going on, don't we? Jesus, who is the same as us, but completely different. We have this union of difference between us and God. Um, 
And as we see that in marriage, it points us towards this bigger reality of how God intends to relate to the world. Now, as we try and make our way in the world as fallen people, which is obviously the big thing that happens between those two passages that I read to you, as we relate to other fallen people in a fallen world, we find all kinds of ways of changing the picture, don't we? Of of meddling with this picture that God has made, which points us to this bigger reality. It might be having sex outside of marriage, either before you're married or people other than the person that you're married to. It might be pornography and enjoying sex without this context of, of relationship and love. It might be kind of easy divorce and, and that these relationships don't have to be lifelong anymore. You can just kind of ditch it when you get tired of it. And it might be having sex with someone of the same sex and not um, expressing your sexuality in the way that um, God outlines. The thing is that when you change the picture... It doesn't point to that reality anymore, does it? It points somewhere different. And so by upholding God's plan for marriage, whether you do that by being married, or whether you do that by remaining single but celibate, by upholding God's plan for marriage, we uphold the picture of the relationship that God makes possible. God's plan for redeemed humanity and the relationship that he wants with us. Which actually means that celibacy for Single people is a brilliant thing that should be honoured. And it isn't really, is it? It should be honoured a lot more than it is. When, when married people hold to the picture that, God has, um, that God's created for sex and marriage, they get a church service and a cake and a, a disco, don't they? Um, but for single people who uphold God's plan and God's pattern for marriage, you just get a sort of um, like pitying kind of hand on the elbow sort of thing. Whereas actually both point to this glorious reality of the relationship that God wants with human beings, the relationship between Christ and his church. So when you put all of that together, what I think you end up with, when you help people to see what sex means, what it's about, then actually Christian sexual ethics start to make a bit more sense. It's not just a list of things that God finds a bit distasteful, there's a bigger picture that it fits into. Uh, one of the best comments, well, it wasn't the best comment, but a, a fairly pleasing comment that I had after a, a talk that I'd done at a university on this. Somebody said to me, um, I completely disagree with everything you said, but it does make sense. Which is interesting, but also I thought, well, actually that's, that's a pretty good place to get to. She might not like the conclusions, but at least she saw that it made sense, because... What I usually want to try and do is, when I've been able to show that things make sense, is to then say, okay, if that makes sense, let's talk about Jesus. And I find again and again that as I hear people talking about the issues around sexuality, people often don't get to Jesus. Jesus often doesn't get much of a look in in the conversation. Um, But actually, I think that's where we need people to get to. To be honest, if I was having a conversation with someone, I'd probably start with Jesus. Um, It makes more sense logically, I think, to start with, is there a God, and then you work on from there. But actually, most people probably won't let you keep talking long enough to outline everything I've just said. So start with Jesus. And the reason is that Jesus is attractive. 
as you open up the Gospels and you read um, how Jesus encounters people, you see, don't you, that all kinds of people flock to Jesus from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of life situations. Um, And people still do. From all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of ways of thinking about these issues, people are still attracted by Jesus. Lots of the arguments and the discussions that that we have or that you hear in the media or whatever about same-sex relationships, they tend to focus on, uh, particularly from people who affirm same-sex relationships and say that, you know, that's okay, they tend to focus on um, personal stories. You know, let me tell you about my um, cousin, let me tell you about my sister, let me tell you about my brother. Um, And particularly when all the public discussions about same-sex marriage were going on, um, that was a a prominent feature in in the debates in the House of Commons and all sorts of places. And the Bible text can, if we... If we put it across in a certain way, the Bible, what the Bible has to say can seem quite cold and quite kind of um, dispassionate about the whole thing. And we end up in a situation where you have sort of personal narrative, which is emotive and which kind of really um, gets people on side, is just put up against propositions of truth, which feel, yeah, kind of cold and, um, and harsh. The great thing is that in Jesus we have both, don't we? We have a person who embodies the truth. So we're not abandoning truth by saying, well, let me talk to you about Jesus. Actually, we're showing them the truth. And the good news of the gospel, um, it isn't just news about a person, is it? It is a person, the person of Jesus. So when we invite someone to become a Christian, whatever their background, we're inviting them to know Jesus personally, And exactly the same is true when we're talking to our our gay friends, our LGBT neighbours. We want them not just to know about Jesus, but to be introduced to Jesus himself. And I usually start with um, talking, as I just mentioned, about the way that Jesus welcomes all sorts of people. Prostitutes, tax collectors, the poor, the sick. Um, I think you have to be careful not to directly categorise LGBT people with, with any of those groups. But what I want to do is show people that Jesus welcomes people from the margins of society. People that the rest of society would have not wanted anything to do with. Jesus has lots of things to say about how we should live and how those people should live that he he welcomes. Um, But how people live doesn't prevent them from coming to Jesus. But I always want to go on and say... um, that Jesus claimed to die for us because we've rejected God. Which isn't, obviously isn't just a gay problem, is it? That we've rejected God, that we've turned away from him, that we need rescue. That goes for all people. Which is is a helpful thing to be able to say. That Jesus made it possible for us to be welcomed by God. Jesus died for us, whoever we are, whatever the issues that we're dealing with. And the thing is that no one else I know has done anything remotely like that for me. And you can usually guarantee the person you're talking to would say the same. So that means, I think, that means I can trust Jesus when he then has hard things to say. Or when following Jesus places hard commands on my life in terms of things I have to deny myself or um, the kind of choices that I have to make. I trust Jesus 
because he's shown himself to be ultimately trustworthy. It's hard to believe that God in Christ is so committed to me that he would die for me and then to believe that when he's done that he then wants to make life as difficult as possible. It's hard to believe both of those things at the same time, isn't it? And I'd always want to finish by talking about the future that Jesus makes possible and the hope that we have because of what Jesus has done. You could have lots of arguments about uh, specific Bible passages dealing with homosexuality. If you want to ask when we have Q&A in a minute, you can do that. Um, but normally I'd wait until those things come up rather than beginning with you know, Leviticus 18 because I want people to meet Jesus. And I'd always want anything I say about any of those individual verses to fit into that bigger picture. The bigger picture that God uh, paints for us in terms of relationships, but also I'd want all of those verses to be seen in the light of the good news of Jesus, of a God who gives himself for us because he wants us to know him so badly. Now I realise I've been talking for about half an hour, um, so what I'm going to do is just really briefly tell you what the two kind of responses I, I think should be, and then you can ask me for more details in a minute. Because I think there are all kinds of implications for then, as Christians, how we respond. There are political implications, there are kind of social implications. Um, but I think there's two things that are probably the two most important things to bear in mind. And they're two things that I think any person who is um, gay or who is gay and becomes a Christian or is a Christian, two things that people need if we're going to expect them to live in the light of of what I've been outlining, to live faithfully according to God's plan for sex and marriage. Two things that they, we need. The first one, I mean, neither of them are rocket science. The first one is the gospel of grace. And this, that's probably the most important thing because anyone who feels their sexuality pulling them in the opposite direction to God's will needs help to see themselves and their struggles in the light of the gospel. Again, as we all do whatever our struggles, whatever our issues. But I'd want to gently suggest that it's more of a struggle for a gay person to believe that, possibly, than others. Let me read you a quote from a guy called Wesley Hill. He's written an excellent book called Washed in Waiting about his struggles as a gay Christian. Listen to what he says. Sometimes I feel that no matter what I do, I am displeasing to God. Even after a good day of battling for purity of mind and body, there is still the feeling when I put my head down on the pillow at night to go to sleep that something is seriously wrong with me, that something's askew. I feel in those moments that my homosexual orientation makes God disappointed or unhappy or even faintly upset with me. So that's what you're kind of speaking into or against or whatever when uh, you have someone who is a Christian but who's struggling with their sexuality. That will always be the the question, that will always be the implication that God is somehow displeased whatever else they do, whatever, however else they manage to live um, they need to be reminded regularly that they're a son or a daughter of the living God, a co-heir with Christ God's treasured possession, all those things um, no matter who they are, no matter what their struggles um, they also need reminding we need reminding that our sin is serious just like everyone else the danger is that you spend so much time thinking about your sexuality, that actually you miss all of the ways that God's at work in your life, in other areas, 
and you miss all the other areas where, God, where you need to be submitting to God and repenting of sin. Um, and I think we, they, need reminding that God isn't trying to catch us out. That he gives us the resources that we need to live for him. The beginning of, of Second Peter, Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his, glo- his own glory and goodness. God has given us everything we need. And we need to be reminded of that regularly. I think the second thing that someone who is gay and a Christian needs um, is gospel community. So the gospel of grace and gospel community. We're created to live in community as human beings, made in God's image. At the heart of that is, is marriage and family. But while we expect gay people to go without marriage and sexual intimacy and family and all those things, we're not very good at offering something kind of in its place, are we? God has offered something in its place because he brings us together as the community of the church. But we aren't really very good at living that out. Um, I don't know whether it's to do with kind of mainly middle class people or what, but we make biological family the ultimate thing, don't we? You've got to get your biological family sorted and then whatever you've got left, you can share with people who need it. Um, that is not the way that God sees things, I don't think. Let me finish with, with one more quote. This is from a, a lady called Rosaria Butterfield, who, um, again, is a, she was a radical feminist lesbian English professor who then became a Christian and her whole life kind of turned upside down. Um, but she said this, From my experience, the church is living on a starvation diet of community. I can't live like that. And maybe the people you are witnessing to are put off because they don't want to live like this either. Think about what it might mean for a gay person to become a Christian. It could mean breaking up a relationship, potentially even a same-sex marriage. There might be children involved um, these days. It might might mean being rejected by the LGBT community. Um, And they then need to face living the rest of their lives without those support structures. So what happens when they get ill, or when they get old, or if they get lonely? Who do they go on holiday with? Who do they celebrate Christmas with? Again, I want to gently suggest that I think gay people probably have the most to give up if they're going to follow Jesus, probably on a par with someone changing religions. Are you prepared to be the replacement community that people like that will need, potentially for 60, 70, 80 years, until Jesus comes back because they will need that for the rest of their lives or until Jesus comes back okay I'm going to stop there I've gone way over the time I was going to talk for anyway Um, all I've done really is is throw out some things to get a a discussion started I realise there's loads of things I haven't said that I should have Um, but we're just going to take a couple of minutes um, I guess you can get a drink and stuff if you want to just a couple of minutes where you can write down some questions we've got some little... um, bits of paper and pencils and things. So if you want to take a couple of minutes to write a question or you can ask it using your, your powers of speech and then I'll see, um, I'll see if I can have a go answering some of those in a minute. Okay. This makes it quite easy for me because there is no way that we are going to get through all these Unless you're all happy to stay until Tuesday. Um, okay, so, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to dive in. Um, we'll, 
yeah, we'll, we'll stop eventually. Um, if you get to the point where you actually need to leave, then feel free to walk out. We won't assume that I've offended you. Um, and, yeah, I'll just get going, shall I? Um, I'm going to start. I've lost the actual question. Here we go. So someone had kind of already asked me this question anyway, but this one says, um, given that a following up on same-sex feelings is a sin like any other, do you think it's okay for Christians to label, whoops, to label themselves as gay? Um, some people, some, some attempted to anger, e.g., uh, for example, and wouldn't label themselves angry. So we would get upset if, we, if someone said they were an angry Christian. Um, yeah, um, good question. And, and people often sort of say to me, you might have noticed I use the word gay mainly, um, rather than the phrase same-sex attracted, which uh, some other uh, Christians prefer. Um, I have no real problem with some of my very uh, godly and gifted brothers and sisters who prefer to use the term same-sex attracted. Um, I don't generally. I mean, I do when it puts evangelical Christians at ease if I need to do that. But um, I, There are a few reasons really why I, I say gay rather than same-sex attracted. Um, I guess one of them is, is personal, because I actually feel like when someone says they have same-sex attraction or they struggle with same-sex attraction, it can feel quite a, a sort of separate thing, just this kind of thing I have, like, um, I don't know, astigmatism or something like that. So, um, and I actually feel like that doesn't really capture very well my personal experience of it, because actually it impacts all kinds of areas of life, and it impacts all different kind of things about how we relate to people, how I relate to men and how I relate to women and all sorts of things. But I think the main reason for me is, is missional, in that the people that I talk to, uh, when they reach for a word to describe their, their sexuality, their, their feelings, the word that they reach for is, is gay. The, the word that the, the world reaches for is gay. And obviously, you know, that doesn't immediately mean that it's the, the best idea. But um, I think... A lot of people argue that we should say same-sex attracted instead of gay because uh, same-sex attracted gets rid of all of the problems that the word gay has. So some people assume that if you say gay, then you mean that either you're in an active sexual relationship with someone of the same sex, that you adopt all the poli politics of the kind of gay rights, gay liberation um, movements. Um, I think, to be perfectly honest, that's a, an age thing. So over a certain age, people assume that, and then kind of younger generations just haven't been brought up with that understanding of the word, of the word gay. Um, and um, I always find that it's much better, rather than assuming that you've, you've made yourself perfectly clear in the words that you use, I think it's much better to start with the words that people are using themselves, and then to have a conversation about what they mean by those words, and not to assume things, not to assume that if they say... So I hate the idea that I might have to say... People have suggested this. Okay, if you're going to say gay, you're, you're gay and you're a Christian, you probably need to say you're a celibate gay Christian. And I think, well, do you say you're a celibate straight Christian? Is that, um, we don't normally expect people to testify to their sexual purity in, in their introductions. And, and I just think, you know. Um, I mean, the other reason that I say gay more than same-sex attracted is because it really winds up evangelical Christians. <laughs> but not, not, not just because I'm a kind of contrary kind of character, but because actually we, we, assume, 
we want to state the terms of the discussion that people have about these issues. And every, all of this, particularly kind of out in the world and in academic circles, all of it is so bound up with ideas of power and authority that the church has been telling people what they should believe about this and, and been laying kind of um, burdens on people for so long. And, it, and it, it feels like a power play to say, well, we can talk about this, but only if you use the words that I've chosen. And so actually, it's much more helpful, as I said, to use the words that people use and then to have a discussion. When I first started um, kind of telling friends and, and colleagues and others about kind of my own experiences in this area and, and my own sexual orientation, I repeatedly had a conversation that went, um, I've got something to tell you, I'm gay. Ooh, do you not think you should use the phrase same-sex attracted? Was because people were honestly wanting to be helpful, um, and that was the thing they remembered from when they'd been to a seminar on it or whatever, or read a book. Um, and they did, they were concerned, you know, they were concerned that I was thinking about my identity correctly and that I was um, finding my identity in, in Christ and not in things that the world says. And that is definitely something that people need help with, that gay people who become Christians need help with. But I'm not sure the second thing in the conversation is the right point to to kind of clarify the language that we're using um, which is why I then I like to provoke that discussion by using those words but then the question that I was actually given is um, we wouldn't call someone an angry Christian so um, is that um, is it right to call someone a gay Christian um, and it, it I mean this is a discussion that goes on and on and on different people take different sides and it really depends on what example you use as the equivalent so if you use if you substitute um, kind of an appetite or something like that instead of anger and you say well actually we all have appetites but our appetites can become sort of disordered um, that that we yeah if, if, you, if you use anger then obviously the, the conclusion is yes you shouldn't call yourself an angry Christian you should be praying for, for God to change your heart so that you're not angry anymore. But I don't think that um, sexual orientation is necessarily the right equivalent. Because I would say that something like lust is the equivalent of, of anger, something which we, we want to kind of rid ourselves of. And actually my sexual orientation is just about the direction of, of my desires rather than um, being this kind of thing that, I, that is... Sexuality is a good thing, but mine points in the wrong direction, is, guess, is, is how I think I would understand it. Which isn't, I don't think, directly equivalent to anger, but it just kind of depends on what you believe to be the, the equivalent thing that you're talking about. So I think it is okay. Uh, lots of my brothers and sisters would disagree um, for different reasons, and it doesn't look like that discussion is going to come to an end anytime soon. Um, so you can make up your own mind. Um, I was going to say, does anyone, anyone want to come back on this? But if I start doing that, then we'll be here for, for days and days. Um, but if you really do want to come back on any of these, then shout. Um, I'm trying to find a, connect, a question that's kind of linked. Um, okay. How should we respond if invited to a non-Christian same-sex civil ceremony? Interesting. How should we respond if invited to a non-Christian same-sex civil ceremony. A couple of important things there, aren't there? That it, we're talking about non-Christians rather than Christians, and we're talking about a civil ceremony rather than a 
a kind of religious ceremony, which is, you don't get many of those yet. Um, how should we respond? And again, this is the kind of thing where it's, it's partly about wisdom and about your conscience. Um, I've been to two same-sex weddings. I think one of them I made a mistake, and I think the other one was probably I did better. So the first one was my friends from uni. Uh, one of my friends from uni got married to a guy, and uh, I went to the wedding with my uni friends. And I sort of assumed, well, they all know my views, so as I go to this wedding, um, it's obvious that I'm not supporting this, but I'm supporting him. I'm supporting my friend and um, his husband now. Um, I'm, I'm being supportive of them as people, but not of what they're doing. And then in the, the reception, um, basically he did this big speech, which was like, thank you so much that you all have rejected what the church thinks about um, you know, gay marriage and that you're here supporting us and that you're all on board with the idea of same-sex marriage. And I think in that situation, I failed because I, I thought things were clearer than they really were. A few weeks ago, a few months ago, my cousin got married um, in uh, Cornwall. Um, to, so my cousin, who's a woman, got married to another woman um, and all my family went. But in that situation, my, my auntie said... Um, to my mum, so this came a roundabout conversation. Does Gareth want to come to the wedding because, uh, you know, because of his views? Um, and I was able then to say, well, you know, I don't really agree with it, but I want to support my cousin and I want to support uh, my family and I want to be there for my family. And so in that situation, I felt like actually my, my conscience was clear and I was doing the right thing. I was maintaining the relationship, uh, but it was clear what my, what my views were and um, actually it led to some opportunities to talk a bit more about that. Which boils down to, it, people always say these things are a wisdom call, don't they? Um, I think some people come down really heavily on saying, um, no, you should never go because just by going you are endorsing the idea of same-sex marriage. I think if you have that kind of relationship with, with your friend who's invited you, um, or family member, then it is possible to go and to support them as people and you care about them, you care about significant things going on in their lives, but to not be endorsing you know, what they're gesturing about, about marriage. I, that's my view on it. Again, some people would have quite strongly opposing views on that. I mean, you often read kind of blog posts and things where people say, um, you know, it's okay for a, someone who's supplying chairs to a same-sex wedding but it's not okay for someone to supply the wedding cake and that kind of thing. And again, that, that seems to me more about finding loopholes in the red tape rather than being about the relationship with the people that are getting married and the, the gospel and what you're able to communicate about Jesus um, in that. Um, okay, here's one. As a teenager, how should we live our lives in a society he wants us to give up our cross and wants us to choose our identity. Um, how should we show our identity in Christ to those who are not Christian and think we are homophobic? Um, great questions there. Um, I don't envy um, teenagers growing up in the world that they're growing up in. Um, so if you're that teenager, um, well done for keeping going. Um, as I said, when I was growing up with all this stuff... Um, there wasn't the pressure, there wasn't all the, you know, attitudes have changed ridiculously fast over the 30 years or so, just over 30 years that I've been alive. And um, how do you keep going? Um, I think um, 
Yeah, it's hard because basically the whole of society is saying your views are awful and you're, um, yeah, you're homophobic. And particularly for teenagers that are struggling with their own sexuality, the message is the only way you can be fulfilled, the only way you'll survive, basically, is if you give in and express this in ways that, that aren't honouring to God. Um, so I think it, it's got to be about, first of all, um, confidence. So I think build your confidence in um, God's word. Know why you believe the things that you believe. Um, and know what God is, the God who has called you to live like this. Um, just, I guess, really get a good idea of what he's like. The fact that he doesn't just want to make life hard for us, but actually his, his way is best. Sorry if that was a result of something shocking that I said. Um, but then how should we show our identity in Christ to those who are not Christians and think we're homophobic? Um, I think... I mean, the first thing I'd say is make sure you're not homophobic. In that, in that lots of Christians have horrible views about gay people, about people with different lifestyles than theirs, simply because culturally that's what they've been taught as they've grown up in, in churches and things, or because they just don't like things that are different, or because they find it difficult to understand what it must be like to be in that situation. So if, if you're talking to your friends and, and they're reacting badly because of those things, then don't be homophobic is the, is the, the obvious thing to say. Um, I think the thing is, though, that eventually then the gospel is offensive. Um, you know, it does... It is offensive when we say, you know, God cares about how you live, God cares about your, um, the things that you do with your body. Um, I think what I'd say is try to keep widening things out. So when you're able to say, look, actually we're all, we all have ways that we um, want to express our sexuality in ways that God wouldn't want us to, or we all, we all need a saviour, we're all broken people, the more you can kind of widen this out and say, look, this isn't, lots of this is not just about gay people, that's a very specific way that these things work out, but actually, um, you know, it's, a much, it's much bigger than that and applies to all people. The more you can do that, the better, to show that it's not just about gay people, you don't just have a problem with gay people, but um, it's not that you have a problem with everyone, um, but, the, but this applies to everyone. Um, and I think you can show, the, what's really key is, Anything that, whenever you talk about the truth, whenever you explain to people what it is that you believe, then make sure you match it with what I started with, which is that God loves people. God loves gay people. God loves people enough to die for them. Um, and so you want to be communicating that as much as you're communicating anything else about what the Bible says about, about sexuality. Um, there's a guy called, um, I don't know if it's out in this country, there's a guy called Preston Sprinkle, which is a brilliant uh, name. <laughs> Sounds like a sort of hipster unicorn, but um, he uh, he's written a great he's written two great books. One's called People to Be Loved, um, which is um, sort of the fatter, more in-depth version. And then he wrote a book called Living in a Grey World, which I've not actually seen in the UK. I managed to talk him into sending me an American copy, but um, but he kind of explains what he explains some of this kind of in order to help. Um, teenagers uh, to think some of this stuff through um, so you might find that helpful but it's probably not very good recommending American books is it um, can you oh great did you know that or have you just googled it oh, okay 
Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's worth a tenner. Definitely worth a tenner. Um, here's a great one. I've heard Christians say that God is present in all forms of love, including homosexual love, uh, to argue in favour of gay marriage. How would you respond? So the idea that um, you know, love is a great thing, so how can you possibly be against love? Um, I mean, when you read the Bible, the problem isn't that people don't love things and people. The problem is that they love all kinds of things, and some of those are the wrong things, isn't it? Um, and so, actually, love, as a, just a kind of big category, is not actually, I think biblically, is not enough to say that it's, it's definitely a good thing. That actually, sometimes we, we, we love the wrong things, and God says you shouldn't love those things. Um, we sort of have this idea that, you know, if you love something, then there is nothing you can do. You must satisfy your desires. You must uh, pursue a relationship, whatever it is. Um, I think we, wanna, we don't just want to say, therefore, oh no, some kinds of love are bad. Because I think you can say, actually, in some uh, same-sex relationships, you see great examples of commitment, of care, of generosity, um, some of so my, um, the friends who, uh, I, whose wedding I went to, friends from uni, brilliant couple, I love spending time with them, they're loving and kind of giving in that and generous and it's a great example in lots of ways of, of, of love, but then the Bible says there are ways that you can express that wrongly and one of them is marrying someone who's of the... Um, who's of the same sex. Um, I guess probably all those different kind of ways that we can go wrong, people could explain it in terms of love, couldn't they? I don't love this person anymore, or I love this person more than this person, or I love too many people all at the same time. And um, actually, the Bible says that love is a great thing, but there are boundaries and contexts where it's, it's right to live it out, and there are contexts and situations where it's not. Um, Last. Um, why does God change some people from SSA, same-sex attracted, to become heterosexual and not others, even if they've been praying for years? Um, I don't know. Um, I think there are, there, are some story, there are stories of people who have, can definitely testify to, the, to God's work in their lives so that there was a kind of sudden and dramatic change from them being totally homosexual to being totally heterosexual. Those stories are quite few and far between, and most of the other stories that you might hear about people's orientation changing are more that there's a kind of scale and they move along the scale a little way and not kind of the whole way. Um, I think I'd say that God can change people, can't he? And we, we all know all sorts of stories about that. God is powerful, God can do whatever he wants, and I totally believe that God can change people I don't think that it's a promise that he makes in the Bible that people who are attracted to people of the same sex will have their orientation changed. I think the Bible does promise change. It promises that, that we will change, but the promise is that we change to become more like Jesus, isn't it? That we're conformed to the likeness of Christ, that um, we're changed to be more like him. And so that, I think, is, is the change that we want to be aiming for and encouraging people to pray for, Maybe God then will change people's attractions, uh, but I think the Bible is much stronger in terms of
promising and encouraging us to seek that we change to become more like Jesus and not just changes of our, our orientation. Um, it's quarter past eight. Do we want to keep going or do we want to, people want to go? A couple more? Okay. Um, here's a good one. What do you say, uh, what do you say to the argument that God made me this way? Or God made him or her this way? Um, great, uh, great question. Um, I don't know how many of you would be familiar with the Lady Gaga uh, song, Born This Way. Um, It's probably the kind of popular culture um, version of that. Um, Basically, you're born this way, and so how can anyone tell you to not live it out? How can anyone tell you to not express your sexuality, uh, to tell someone to deny who they are? Um, I mean, I'd want to dispute that in terms of the evidence. Um, So um, there is very little evidence for particular causes, um, you know, what the exact cause is, probably the thing that, probably people find themselves attracted to the same sex for a whole variety of reasons, so different people for different reasons, but also probably in the same person, different factors coming together uh, to mean that that they find themselves um, homosexual. Um, So in terms of the evidence, there isn't very strong evidence to be able to say God. God made me this way, um, in terms of like I was, I was born this way. I guess whatever the explanation, people could still say, well, I, I find myself feeling like this, and so um, what does that say about God? And um, if God made me this way, if I find myself being this way, shouldn't I express it? I think the thing is as well, so it's a little bit like the love question. Biblically, your kind of natural response is not a very good measure of whether something is, is right or wrong, is it? Because we have all sorts of natural inclinations to do things, which God then says, actually, that's not the right way for you to live. That's not the right thing for you to do. So, um, in one sense, biblically, it's kind of immaterial. Um, You know, whether you were born this way, whether you experienced something early in your life that made you feel this way, uh, whatever the reason, and even if you can say, you know, God made me this way... um, I think we want to point to the cause being um, we live in a broken world, we live in a fallen world, so whatever the reason, uh, we all then have these feelings and desires which want to lead us away from the way God wants us to live. And then regardless of why we come to be this way, the Bible still then says, and there's a right way for you to live and a wrong way for you to live. Um, Some people say that that a a same-sex attraction, an orientation towards people of the same sex um, is a personal choice. And I think most of us that experience it wouldn't say, well, I, I chose it. I mean, I, I imagine there's probably very few cases where that is true, but most of us would say this is not of our choosing. This is what's happened to us. This is where we find ourselves. Um, but that doesn't mean there's no element of choice involved. Because the suggestion is, well, if it's not a choice, it's biological. If it's biological, there's nothing you can do about it. But that's what makes us different to animals, isn't it? That we can choose which of our biological impulses to um, express and we can choose which ones not to express. And so while our orientation might not be a choice, what we do with it is a choice and it's a choice that God in the Bible um, tells us to, to make. Um, then, sorry, go on. Like okay. Because I was just thinking it through in a conversation um, but I just imagine uh, we would say 
Yeah, absolutely, and I think I think we wouldn't we wouldn't want to go any basically whenever the all the references that the Bible makes to um, people kind of expressing same sex attraction. I mean, the Bible doesn't put it in those terms, but any references the Bible makes to homosexuality, it's about behaviour, and it doesn't kind of get into. I mean, it has a lot to say about identity, but not in terms of kind of sexual identity like that. And so I think we want to be careful that we don't go beyond beyond that and start talking about you know you need to we want to make sure that when we quote the Bible that we're actually making sure that we're talking about behaviour when the Bible's talking about behaviour or we're talking about identity when the Bible's talking about identity um, and I think we do, we do probably just need to challenge that um, maybe lie is too harsh a word but we need to challenge that assumption don't we about identity and we say well actually it's not your whole identity. It feels like it is probably, and, and society tells you that this is the thing that you want to define yourself by. Uh, but actually, the Bible says that we see our identity differently if, if, we're, if we're trusting Jesus, if we acknowledge that there is a God and that we've been made by God, then we start to see not just our behaviour differently, but we start to see our identity differently as well. And I think we want to acknowledge to people, like we're not... I think part of the problem is sometimes... Christians that don't have these struggles, we throw out these kind of, you know, this is what you need to do. You need to stop having this sexual relationship. You need to break off this relationship. You need to just now live for the next 80 years um, celibate on your own. And actually, we probably don't acknowledge properly the implications of what we're saying. Um, And actually, we probably need to take more care in helping people work through what that means for their identity and what that means for... um, choices that they'll make about their lives and, and that kind of thing. I um, don't know if that helps, but maybe I'm running out of steam a little bit now. Um, let me finish with this, this last question about um, reading. Because I said I could only kind of start the... Um, oh, you don't know the question. What reading would you recommend? Um, I said I could only scratch the surface of this. Um, so the book I recommended earlier by Preston Sprinkle is really good. Um, People to be loved. I like his, the position that he starts from. Sam Albury, who I think you've, you've had here talking about some of this stuff. Sam Albury's written a book called Is God Anti-Gay? Which is great. Um, it's short. So my one suggestion is that you don't make that the only book that you read on this subject. Um, it's a great starting point. But if you think you can read 98 pages and have this subject nailed, then... Um, well, well, you can't. So I'd read that. Um, Washed in Waiting, the book I mentioned earlier by Wesley Hill, um, is a great book... Um, quite a lot of testimony in there but Wesley's a really well thought through guy and talking about some of this stuff about what it means to to live faithfully and the challenges of that um, there's a guy called Ed Shaw who uh, works for a, an organisation called Living Out which Sam Aubrey's also connected with um, he's written a book called The Plausibility Problem which is brilliant if you want to think through church and what it would look like in the church to to create a church community where it's plausible to live faithfully and to live God's pattern for, for sex and marriage for the rest of someone's life or until Jesus comes back. Um, great book uh, there. And then a guy called Glyn Harrison, who's a psychiatrist, has just written a book called The Better Story, which I think someone told me was mentioned in the service this morning, if you're here. 
Um, I haven't read very much of it, but I have um, talked to Glyn uh, at length on some of these issues. Um, so I, I'm fairly confident. I don't normally review, but, um, recommend books I haven't read, but I'm fairly confident that one will be great. Um, so I would definitely suggest that. And we haven't really touched on gender, but um, you probably know that Vaughan Roberts has written a book called Transgender, which is, again, short, so don't assume that you'll read it, and that'll be your um, kind of all your questions answered, but it's a good starting point. Um, I realised that, um, so we're going to end now, but I realised that, again, I've only scratched the surface even in answering some of these questions. If you've got questions, if I didn't answer your question, there's still a few here that I didn't get to. Um, I'm going to I guess I'm going to stick around for a bit, so you can chat to me, or maybe chat to others that you know who would be good, Andy or Dan or someone. Um, yeah, I think that's probably, why don't I pray? That seems like a good way to end, doesn't it? Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus welcomes all who come to him. Thank you that the gospel is good news for all who need it from whatever their background, whatever their um, sexuality, sexual orientation, sexual history. Um, Thank you that the gospel is good news for all of us. Thank you that you've shown yourself to be completely trustworthy. That when you ask hard things of us, thank you that you've shown that We can trust you, that you want the best for us, um, and whatever that might mean. Um, So we pray, Father, that you would help each of us to be pure in our uh, relationships, in our the way we the ways we express our sexuality. We pray that we'd be we'd be seeking to live uh, live out the the pattern that you've set, whatever that might mean for each of us. And we praise uh, we pray and we praise you and thank you for. people that you've put around us who maybe are gay or um, have other kind of issues in in this area and thank you that we can be salt and light thank you that we can uh, communicate this brilliant news uh, to our friends and so we pray as we have conversations maybe at work tomorrow or at school or wherever it might be uh, we pray that you'd help us to speak truth but we pray also Lord that you'd help us to remember um, that you love um, our gay friends, our gay neighbours. We pray that that would come across in the way that we speak. Help us to listen well and help us to talk about Jesus as we um, meet friends and family. Um, Yeah, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.